Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Turn to someone around you if you don't mind and say good morning to them. Feel free to shake their hand if you wish. If that's comfortable for you, if not, then I understand. Fist bump them or whatever you want to do, you know, kind of deal. Can we talk from the book of Acts again today? And we are in Acts chapter 19. We have one more week next week, and then we are actually finished with our series through the book of Acts through 12 weeks. We have not completed the book. We are quite aware of that, but uh, we will save the rest for another date, and then we will start in our summer series that are called The Fight, and we talk about the armor of God together, and I'm excited about that. But today from Acts chapter 19 for a few moments, and I'll talk to you about association, guilty by association. And, and so I, I wanted to just start out by, for a moment, defining kind of association and what I, I mean by that. And that's this, the assumption or the appearance that you're part of something due to geography in your life. It's kind of, <coughs> excuse me, where you are. And, and with me, it never fails. It's something about me. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's something about me that when I am in a store shopping that I'm always the guy, I am always the guy that people approach and ask the question, what do they think they ask me? Do you work here? They always ask me that. I don't know why, what it is about me. If I have a sign somewhere or something that says, ask this guy that question, but do you, ask, do you work here? And, and my response many times is no, but can I help you, you know, kind of deal. And I, I want to help people out, sure, but, but I'm I'm located, just because I'm located in the store, the association for some reason with me, and I'm not sure why it is, is that, that simply, do, do you work here? So I've had people even ask me at Lowe's, and, and I don't even have one of those really cool vests that they wear either, but they ask me at Lowe's, you know, do you work here? And, and I, I'll actually be in the, like, my yard working clothes or something, and I'm thinking, no, do you see how I'm dressed? Absolutely not. But can I help you? I helped someone pick out some nuts and bolts one day in, in the hardware department. I don't work here. I didn't get paid for that, but yet I did that. I just want the vest is what I want, okay? This is put it out like that, yes. So I, you know, I had someone come into store and say, hey, they walked up to me and say, do you have this shirt in an extra large? And I said, um, no, you know, my, my first thought was say, um, are you sure that's the right size for you? You know, I don't know, but yet, yet, no, I, I don't, I don't work here. I really don't. Yes. And, and so I did have a woman ask me one time, said, could you help me pick out some clothes for my husband, and I thought that was the strangest thing for someone to ask me. So I spent a lot of 10 or 15 minutes with a woman helping to pick out clothes. I even tried them on for her. I put the coat on and those kinds of things, you know, to kind of like, I guess I was the same size. I don't know. Yes. So it's, it's sort of this association that I have. Oh, you must be part of this because of geography. This is where you are kind of located. When we start Acts chapter 19, it's kind of that way. And so what we find is we, have, we find Paul, he's coming to Ephesus, and he meets this group of people in, in the book of Ephesus. And, and so, well, let's read together, and I'll explain it in a moment. It's, it's Acts chapter 19, verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, we talked about Apollos for a moment last week. We'll touch on that in just a minute. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I have to stop there for a moment for a point and make this with you. And that is that it's interesting to think that he refers to them as disciples, 
but yet they've not heard of the Holy Spirit, even if they have not heard of what has happened in Jerusalem at the upper room, even if they have not heard of what Jesus said in the book of Luke chapter 24, that you'll be clothed with power from on high, even if they have not heard that, then they have surely heard of the prophet Joel and that of the prophecy that we know in the book of Joel about the coming of the Holy Spirit. But they say they have not heard of that. So it begins to cause some suspicion in Paul. So he says this, and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So what this is with these 12 people is that this is a spiritual diagnosis of their heart. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Absolutely, we understand that. Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus, that he was the forerunner of Christ. He was heralding the coming of the Christ. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began, uh, began speaking in tongues and prophesying, verse 7, and there were about 12 men in all. So here is the first thought as we work our way through chapter 19 for a few moments together. It's this, disciples by association. I, I put a question mark by that. Yes, because here Luke refers to them. He referenced them as disciples. But in a sidebar for a moment, I want to say to you, in gospel conversations that you have with people throughout life, never assume where they are in their spiritual journey. Because that's always a mistake to make an assumption simply by the way they look or by association. You make an assumption of where they are in their spiritual journey. So Paul begins to diagnose their hearts, a spiritual diagnosis. And due to their response, I think it satisfies his suspicion. And if we could simply say this was what was Paul's thinking, if we can safely say that, then I think Paul would be thinking, well, what I'm dealing with here is 12 nominal Christians, or what I'm really dealing with here is 12 just disciples of John. But there's something missing in their life. Something missing. And what is missing in their life is that of truth and power. It takes us back to Acts chapter 18. At the very, very end, we talked about that of Apollos. And we hear that Apollos is teaching. He's this great learned man. He's this great orator. He's this great teacher. But he's talking about Jesus. But there's something that's lacking in his life. And that is that of the power or an experience with God. And so along came, comes two people, a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. Remember, we talked about them. And, and, and they simply take him aside and they talk to him about the things of God. The text says... And, and we know that God uses Apollos greatly. He's a, he's a powerful minister later on. So I begin to think, what does this all mean? And what it says to us is this, that sound teaching, sound teaching is essential for your spiritual life. You need to realize that. Sound teaching is essential for your spiritual life. Because when I look at this, I see these 12, they call them disciples, and God could have some point in the middle of the night while they're sleeping, he could have dropped all this stuff in their head. He could have dropped all of this into their life about having a true relationship with him. He could have put all of that in there. But that is not the way this comes out because they don't know because they have yet to hear those things. Because what we understand is this. It is the spirit who honors the word of Christ because he's the spirit of truth. It's what we find in the book of Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. When you are having gospel conversations with people in the community, when you meet somebody somewhere and you have that opportunity, never assume where they are with Christ. Never, never. 
that you need to somehow, in some way as the Lord directs you, that you find, maybe through a question or through a conversation, you pray for discernment to understand where they are and you meet them exactly where they are. But they're called disciples. Are they disciples by association only? Is that what they are? Have they been regenerated? And when we read this text, we think they probably have not. Because what I realize is this, regeneration and association are vastly different. Those two things are vastly different in our lives. Apollos in chapter 18, he has all the right information. He sounds like a disciple. He knows all the right things to say about Christ, but he lacks this experience with Christ. He does. He lacks that experience and that relationship with Christ. And so are we disciples just by association only? You say, Mark, what does that mean? That means how many times we come into this room? Boy, weekly we come into this place and we hear the words that are taught from Scripture. We hear those things, but we don't see a need for a true experience with Christ. We don't see that need. Because here's the thing. Church is a great place to hide because it's a very safe place. It's a very accepting place. So I can kind of come here and I can look like I'm a disciple. I can hide out among others that possibly are disciples because it's a great place to hide. Oh, you're a disciple? Sure, I'm a disciple. Why are you a disciple? I bought the kit online, Amazon. It's on Prime, so it's free. You know, the shipping is free. And so I bought this. I've got the right Bible. I've got the best Bible app that I have on my phone. Even with the package comes the fish sticker for the Holy Wagon. Because when you're a disciple, you call your car the Holy Wagon. So I put that on the back of the Holy Wagon. I ride around town, and I'm a real, like, vintage guy. So I even got the sticker, in case of rapture, this vehicle will be unmanned. Do you remember that sticker? Yes. I used to see that, and I used to think, that's the strangest sticker, isn't it? That makes me really want to love God. It really does. Yes, because there are going to be a bunch of cars at some point, if you believe in the rapture, they're going to be driving out of control. And so we simply are, we find ourselves at times, I think, we are disciples by association only. And we have all those things. We look like that, but inside we're totally empty. Oh, we find ourselves completely empty on the outside. Why? Because we lack the truth and the power. We look like the disciple, but there's no spiritual movement in our lives. Listen, when we read the book of Acts, what we realize about Paul's journey is that his journey is truly about evangelism. It's about spreading the gospel. We know about all of his journeys, and we've gone through a few of them with him, and we will uh, uh, even next week. But yet, we understand it's about evangelism, spreading the gospel. But one thing that we forget about Paul's journeys, it's about a couple of other things. It's about one, it's about that of affirming disciples. He encourages those that are preaching the gospel, sharing the word, and planting churches. And it's also about confirming disciples. And the confirming part, that's what we see here. Yes. So my question to you this morning about your spiritual life, is there movement? Is there movement in your spiritual life today? Well, Mark, that's a personal question. I know. I want you to answer it personally. Is there spiritual movement in your life? Look at verse 8. We continue reading. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn, I underline the word stubborn, knowing that none of you in this room are stubborn, right? It's the ones that are not here this morning that are. But I know that, and you can share this with them later. But they're hearing the, re- the, they're hearing the gospel. He's reasoning 
convincing and persuading them, but yet they're stubborn. They continue in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them. He took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the um, hall of Tyrannius. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I want to talk to you for a moment about this term, stubbornness, and talk to you about this also term of continuing in unbelief. You know what this is? This is the hardening of our hearts. This is exactly what this is. This is the hardening of our hearts. Because you cannot continue to hear the word of God over and over and over. And consequently, you reject that word over and over in your life. And there not be some consequences. Kind of sit in that for a moment. Why, why do you say that, Mark? Because what I realize about my life spiritually, your life spiritually, and what I realize biblically about our lives is there's no neutral in our spiritual life. Understand that. There's no neutral in our spiritual life. There's no coasting in this journey. Understand that. There's no neutral as we walk this dirt path of sanctification together. There's not. And some would say, well, well, I'm just stalled spiritually. I feel like I'm stalled spiritually. Can I tell you? No, that is not biblical at all, that you're not stalled spiritually, because what I understand about spiritual life is this, that it's constant movement, and you're either moving closer to Christ, or you're moving in the other direction away from Him. But it's a constant movement within our lives. And, and you, but you say, you, you know, this is not about perfection, but it's about progress. And absolutely, we say that all the time. But I think that we can become so focused on that non-perfection aspect of that statement that we forget about this is about progress in our lives. This is about growth in our lives. This is about you moving from that of that real of your life where we are struggling, where God meets us to the ideal of our life to become the person that God has designed us to be to simply for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And I think sometimes in, in neglecting that process or progress of our lives, we hide behind the non-perfection aspect of the statement. We really do. Well, I'm not perfect, so it's no big deal. And I'm not perfect, so I don't have to do that. And I'm not perfect, so I don't have to be obedient. And we kind of use that as our escape card. We use that to kind of get out from being obedient to God. Can I tell you, here's the thing. There is no neutral in your spiritual life. No neutral. There's movement. That's what this is about. There is movement in our lives. Can, let me read to you from the book of Psalms, Psalm 95 and verse 1. I love this psalm, but it ends very much relating back to what we just talked about. It's Psalm 95, verse 1. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. I don't think, I, you know what? I think in your bulletin it's the wrong psalm. Is it not? Yes, yes. That's my fault. Psalm 95, verse 1. So just listen. Don't put the one on the screen that you have up there. It's the wrong one, I think. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are are, are his also. The sea, his for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, sheep of his hand. But look what this text says. 
If you have your Bibles, it says this, Today, it's a moment of urgency. He says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. As in Meribah, this is about the book of Exodus, or as in Massa in the wilderness, it's that moment when the Israelites find themselves in the middle of the wilderness, they're complaining. You know, they... Like complaining was an unusual thing for them, right? They're complaining uh, to Moses. They're simply testing God. God, why did you bring us out here to leave us? Because we have no water. There's no water for us. That's what this was about. And, and so it's about hardening their hearts. It's a time of testing. Lord, are you for us or are you against us? Is simply what they're saying. Because the hardening of the heart is at the bottom of all distrust of the Lord. It is. That I, I hear these things about God, and I, I either hear them in a devotion, or I read them on a blog, or, or I, I, you know, I've heard them at church in a sermon, and, and so I hear these things, but yet I reject them, and I, I, I refuse to allow them to mold my heart and mold my life, and the more I do that, the more my heart becomes hardened to God, and the more my heart becomes hardened to God, the less trust I have that He is really for me, and the less trust I have that He will take care of me because I don't know Him. This is about hearing His Word. Listen, this is about hearing His Word and responding with trust and obedience. Do you trust Him enough to obey Him? Oh, you, have you ever had that moment when God had said something to you? You said, God never talks to me. No, God does talk to you. Yes, He does. You're His child, okay? It's just that sometimes you don't recognize it or you don't want to hear it. And so, have you ever had that moment when God speaks to you and you have someone who has a need and God says to you, Hey, uh, you know, you feel this in your heart. It may not be an audible voice. God says, I want you to bless them with what I blessed you with. So give them everything in your wallet right now. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever had that moment, right? So, so what do you do? You begin to do this mental inventory of what's in your wallet, don't you? Absolutely, yes. And all of a sudden you remembered, you remembered that you have just sold your riding lawnmower to your neighbor, Right? And now you have $300 in your wallet instead of having the normal $20 bill that maybe your wife gives you as allowance, okay? Yes? So, so what do you do? What do I do? Is it, is, it, is it 320 or is it the 20? Lord, I know you're not aware that I sold the riding lawnmower yesterday and I have the 300, so I just want to make you aware of that because I know that if you were aware of that, you would not ask me to do that. Do you understand this? And I think this is important that we, that we grasp this this morning. Do you trust God enough to obey Him? Well, okay, God. Here it is, you know. I was going to use that to take the family on vacation, and we were going to have a great time in, in, you know, in your creative order, focusing upon you with our feet in the sand, looking at the waves, Lord. But if that's what you want me to do, neglect my family and give it, then I'll do it. Just keep it, okay? Just keep it, all right? Do you trust him enough to obey him? God has placed someone on your heart for a long time now about having a gospel conversation with them 
and you continually give God excuse after excuse after excuse for not having that conversation with them, you tell God you don't know enough scripture, you're not a theologian, you don't this, you don't do that, that you're shy and all those kinds of things. And the question I have to ask you, and I ask myself this, is do you trust him enough to obey him? Because that's truly a disciple. That's a disciple. Sit in that for a moment. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases. It left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists uh, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you. In the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest by the name of Sceva was doing this. So the second thought is this this morning, that the miracle in a miracle is the source of the miracle. You say, Mark, that's weird. I know, but hang on for a moment. The miracle in a miracle is the source of a miracle. If we're going to talk about miracles, if we're going to answer the question, does miracles still happen today? And I give you a resounding, yes, they do. Just look around you, understand that. Yes, they do. But yet all types of miracles take place in the lives of people through God today. Then I think we have to understand the purpose of miracles. And the reality is they are not ultimately about us. They're not ultimately about us. If we read 13 and 14 of this text that we just read, these seven sons of the high priest, it's about them. It is absolutely about them. And miracles are not ultimately about us. They're events that point us back to that of one greater than the miracle itself. Because the miracle is not even the point. It's the source of the miracle. If you're solely, listen, if, if they were solely about us, I believe that would happen all the time, but they point us to something greater in life. They point us to something greater in life. They do. There's something that happened, and I, I've shared this with you, and I, I won't go into all the detail, but... There was a great miracle that took place in, in Reba's life when she was carrying Grayson. And when her body began to create antibodies to attack Grayson, and we were told that we should abort him, that he would be born severely disabled and deaf and blind, and all the other horrible stories that were told to us about how he would be born because that of his blood was so contrary to to hers in, in a way that her body was attacking it as a foreign body. And, and so this week, uh, Reba had to take him for the military to be blood type because we've never blood typed Grayson as far as we know since the day that he was born, correct? Isn't that true? And what we realize, and, and don't, I'm, I won't get into all this because I am no scientist, understand that, and I am no physician, but what we realize is when his blood test came back, what we realize is this, that he still, he, he, he is not the blood type that he had in the womb when Reba carried him. Yeah, it's right, isn't it? How do you explain that, right? Yes. It's, it, it's, a, it's a holy transfusion is what that is, yes? Isn't that right? That's exactly what that is, Yes. And it reminds us that God is a God of miracles. God is a God of miracles. But that miracle, as much as God loves Reba and I, yes, and much as he wants to do
do those things for us, the reality of that is it points always back to Him. It always brings glory to Him. It always says this is about the gospel. Why are miracles about the gospel? Because the gospel is about you and I receiving something that we don't earn or we don't deserve or we can't even explain. What is a miracle? It's about you and I getting something that we can't earn, we can't deserve, we can't buy, or we can't explain. It brings us back to the gospel is what it does. It makes Christ known is exactly what this is. What, that's why Satan attempts to take the miracles that Paul was doing and the seven sons of a high priest, and Satan attempts to change it into some cheap magician's trick. And you have to understand Ephesus. Ephesus is a town that is simply engulfed by magic. It's full of magicians. It is a, the temple keepers of the goddess of, of Artemis is there. It, it's simply surrounded by magic and all those kinds of things. And so it seems fitting that this would happen in the city of Ephesus. And so he tries to simply do that. Why? Because the reality is the purpose of miracles is to point us back to the one that performs the miracle, and that's Christ. That's Christ. But I think we get so focused on the manifestation sometimes, we forget about that of the source. And that's the purpose of those things within our life. It points us back to the gospel. It points us back to that of Jesus. It's the revealing of God's character and nature through the, through the lives of his children when he does miracles within our lives. But wait, Mark, you know, you say, here's these seven brothers. And I'm kind of thinking like they're thinking. They're watching Paul. I think if Paul can cast out evil spirits... Dude, we can do this too. If God can do this, then we can do this because we've seen magic before. So we can do this on our own and we can take control of things and make this happen on our own. So kind of like step aside, God, you know, I, it's, I want the things of God, but I don't want God is what they're saying, you know, that I, I want his creation, but I don't want the creator in my life is exactly what they're doing. Why? Because creation is not going to demand something or not going to lovingly desire something for me, but the creator is. I want the miracle, but God is optional. It's the economy of our relationship with him. And, and that is that God finds us in death. He finds us in death. That we're dead to our sins. We're, we're lost. We're hopeless. We're undone. In fact, Scripture says that when he died for us, we were enemies to God. That he gave himself for us in the moment that we were even enemies of his. That we are hopelessly lost. We are dead spiritually. And then what happens is God looks down upon the earth and, and with his love and compassion, he fulfills his promise from the book of Genesis chapter 3. I had to mention that. See, I had to throw that in there another time. Yes. And, and so he fulfills that promise. He sends his son. His son comes in the incarnate Christ. He lives in this world. He, un, he undergoes all the things and all the pain that you and I would undergo in life. He is simply falsely accused, arrested. He is crucified on a cross. He is buried in a borrowed grave. On the third, third day, he arose. And what happens is that he brings us life. He brings us life. That's the gospel. I love that part. I love the life part, don't you? That's what I want. I want life. In fact, I want that part that says life more abundant is what I want. That's the part that I want. And, and this is a great thing right here. Absolutely. So I want the fullness of life that God has for me. And so then what God says is this then. 
If you want the fullness of life, I've saved you from death. I have simply given you life. Then here's what I want you to do. I want you to die. That's not what I want, you know. I don't want this part. I want the life part. That, that's the part I want. God says, if you want the fullness of life, then I want you to die. I want you to die to yourself. That's the economy of our relationship with God. That's exactly what it is. If you want the fullness of life, you die to self. No, no, no. I want the miracle. Here's what I want. I want the miracle of life. I want that without the relationship of obedience. That's really what I want in life. That's what I desire. I want to speak to evil spirits and then they leave that person. But I don't want a relationship with the one who causes demons to tremble. That's not what I want. It's what Jesus says in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, and verse 24. He says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself. Take up his cross. A cross is an instrument of death. It is. It's the death of our own ways. Oh, Lord, I can do this without you, Lord. If you just step aside, I can make all this happen. It's the sin that I love to hang on to. God, I'm going to give you all these other things in my life, but I got this real pet thing that I'm going to hang on to in my life, and I'm going to hold on to that. And, and, and so he finds us in death. He brings us to life. But he says, here, here's what's going to happen. You got to deny yourself. And then he goes on to say, for whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And when we read that text, we think so much about riches and money and the things that we want to acquire in life. And that's kind of the way that we approach that, you know. But what I realized, that last part about what if a man, he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul. When I think about that, it's not that we just want things. It's that we want things our way. Is what we want. Hey, I'm going to call my brothers together, my six bros. We're going to get together. We're going to cast out some demons. That's what we're, that's, that's what we're going to do. Now, why you'd want to do that, I have no idea, you know? But we're going to do that. Well, it's, it's for them. It's to bring some kind of, uh, I think, accolades to their own lives. And so we're going to use the words that Paul has used because we've heard that. It's almost as if what Apollos did in 18, he uses the words, but he lacks the truth and the power in his life. It's what the 12 uh, disciples of Ephesus does. They, they simply use the words, but they lack the truth and the power within their life. It's the miracle without the source of a miracle. And without the source of a miracle, it's nothing but a cheap magician's trick. I want the fullness of life without the submit and surrender part. Mark, if I knew you were going to talk about submitting and surrendering, I would have not come this morning. You're not to wait until next week, right? Yeah, maybe I hit a better chapter in the book of Acts. Can I tell you, the Acts is full of this kind of stuff of submitting and surrendering. Here's what, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says in John 4 and 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And I think that's such a powerful verse for you and I this morning. Because what's the purpose of food? Oh, what's the purpose of food? You're going to have lunch in a few moments. If I am quiet, then you're going, to, you're going to have lunch in a few moments. The purpose of food is to taste good. And that's what we think, right? That's right. But that's not true. The purpose of food, the purpose of food is to nourish the body. That is the purpose of food. It is, yes. So obedience is to the soul and spirit what food is to our physical body. 
that obedience energizes us and it strengthens and it enlightens us. It brings lasting satisfaction. Contrary to what you and I think about obedience, and I have to say this to you as I, as I move on, is, is that contrary to what we think about obedience in God, is that obedience is not about you and I earning some special place with Him. It's not about Him loving us more. It's not like, well, you know, we just kind of at a place with God where on a scale of 1 to 10 on a love scale, 10 being the most, 1 being the least, God's loving us right now at a 5 until we do something for Him in obedience. Then God will kind of bump it up to a 6 and a 7 and an 8, and sometimes we may get a 10. But it's not that at all, because here's the deal. God never does anything halfway. God never does anything halfway. God will never love you any more than how he loves you in the amount he loves you right at this moment. So it's not about God loving you even more than in your life. It's not that at all. So understand that. I think that we need to realize that that's not what obedience is. It's not that. It's not about you having a, a closer place with him so that you maybe sit up higher than others. That's not what this is about. It's not, it's not about us being perfect. We've talked about already. Because why? Because he's already perfect. So we don't have to be perfect within our lives. We don't live under the weight of that. It's the result of a love relationship with him that I'm obedient to him because I love him. Not because I'm earning something from him or I want something from him or I even want him to do anything else in my life that he's already that he has not already done it's because of a love relationship with him that's what drives my obedience to him so when he says to me i found you in death i brought you life but i want you to die again to yourself and to your own desires, and to your sins, and to those things that you think are going to fix your life and to bring you fullness of life. I want you to die to them. I know that God has the very best for me in mind. So I am going to simply, as inconsistent and messy it is, I'm going to simply step out in obedience with Him because it's part of my love relationship with Him. Not because I not because he somehow is twisting my arm. In this process, I think what I have to do is this, and I have to hurry for a moment, and I have to deal, one, with who I am and where I am on this journey. That's important. Paul teaches us that as he approaches these 12 disciples, and I, then I have to deal with who he is. I have to heal, deal with who he is. And there's this loving call from God today for you and I to lay down our lives for him in obedience. So what does that mean? That means I lay down my unforgiveness in my life for others. Oh, Mark, don't talk about unforgiveness. No, no, let's talk about unforgiveness because God has forgiven you. So I lay down that unforgiveness. I lay down the pain of my life. I lay down my lust. I lay down my addictions. I lay down the stubbornness. Now, that's for all the other people who are not here. Remember, so don't get all wired up on me, okay? I, I, I lay down that, that absence of truth that leads to the hardening of my heart. I lay it down and I say, Lord, there's no more bag of tricks that I have, and I'm pulling no more rabbits out of my hat, no more. Because this is you. And in my weakness, he becomes my strength. Look what happens in verse 15. But the evils, I love this text. This is one of my favorite ones in the whole Bible. Okay, For all the kids in here, I'm about to say the word naked, Okay, so don't get all crazy on me, all right? So hang on. All right, here it is. It's in the Bible. It's awesome. I love it, yes. But this, the evil spirit answered them, and Jesus, I know, he said, 
or it said, and Paul I recognized, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them. Understand, this is a seven to one ratio, okay? Understand, there's one guy with an evil spirit, there's seven sons of the high priest, and he jumps on them and he opens a can, is what he does, right? Is exactly what he does. He mastered all of them, he overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Yes. The result is always the same when I take things into my own hands. The result is always the same when I try to do things my way. When I tell God that I know God, I know more than you do, God, that I, I am smarter than you, Lord, that, that I can handle this on my own. Step back, Lord, and let me take care of this. And when we try to take things into our own hands, those things always end up mastering us. That's what happens. Yes. You know what? My, my dad used to say this, and I always thought it was kind of funny. The, the staff, we have this young, very young staff, you know, and I'm like the, the father. I'm like, well, I'm like the grandfather, some of them, I guess, maybe. So they always write these little idioms down. I say all the time, Nathan, our children's pastor, he's making a book. He says he's going to publish it someday. But, but my dad used to say this. My dad, this is just like showing up to a gunfight with a butter knife. It's exactly what this is like. That you are not going to win. Understand that, that you will not win. It's an attempt to exert human power in a moment, in a situation where things only respond to spiritual power. It's trying to come against those things in our own strength. And when we try to come against those things in our life, in our own strength, it always ends up mastering us, is what it does. Ephesians 6 and 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, but against powers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over their present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm that this is not a battle of flesh and blood. This is not a battle of our intelligence or our ability or our wit or our humor or our charm or our character or any of those kinds of things. This is a spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. And when you try to take things into your own hands, when you try to do them on your own, when you try to approach these issues, these deep set issues in your own life, these strongholds of your own life, and you try to say, Lord, I will handle this. Step out of the way. I can take care of this. They will end up mastering you. And that's exactly what this is about. Jesus, I know, he says. And so I looked that up. I really researched this to understand what he's, the, the man with the evil spirit, the evil spirit is saying. Jesus, I know. And, and, and the words he used there is to be known. Uh, that, that basically, I know you as the creator. So he knows who Jesus is. He said, Paul, I recognize, that's to be acquainted with, yes, I'm aware of Paul, I'm aware of the power that works within Paul, that Jesus lives in the life of Paul, but who are you, is what he says. Yes, this encounter doesn't equate Paul with Jesus, but what it does, it gives us a very clear picture of what happens when that of a human being submits himself to Christ, and the power of Christ resides in his life, both truth and power reside in his life, and then he confronts those things in the world, in his own life, in the spirit, that he will be victorious over those things. But what I realize is that when you take things into your own hands, it masters you, is what he's teaching us. Later on, you read Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. I won't read that. Can I finish the story? Verse 17. 
it says this, and, they, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear, the awe of God is what that is, fell upon them all. And the name of Jesus Christ, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. This is spiritual growth is what this is. This is what's supposed to be taking place. It's movement. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. That's repentance. Because we understand that what repentance is is not just forgiveness, yes, but it's actually turning from your way. And so that's exactly what this is. And they counted the value of them and they found it came to 50 thousand pieces of silver so the word of the lord continued to increase and prevail mightily the last thought is this before we pray is only god can take a debacle like this and turn it into a gospel miracle yeah only god can do that god takes this fleshly attempt of these seven brothers and from it we derive grace and repentance and transformation and growth process yes not perfection we know that we've talked about that already we focus on the process part of that and can i be honest with you this morning for a moment if sometimes the process in your life is you're going to step backwards and that's going to happen because you are human and that is going to take place yes absolutely because if you're thinking about process in your life and progress in your life then, then you're thinking, oh, that, you know, I'm going to continue moving forward, moving forward. I'll never take another step back in my life. I will never do that. Can I tell you what? You are human. You're human. And there will be moments that you mess up. And there will be moments when you don't get it right. That's absolutely what we see here. Yet look at what God can do, even in those moments when we try to fix things ourselves. The gospel is not only proclaimed here, but there is this fear and awe of God. There's an understanding of Jesus. There's confession. They brought their books of incarnation. They burned them together. They refused to sell them to involve others in that of magic and and that of darkness. The word of God prevailed mightily. Even when we don't get it right, God gets it right. Even when we don't get it right, God gets it right. I think it's such a powerful thing about Him. Oh, is there consequences? Yeah. There's still a a beatdown that goes on here. And then there's seven naked brothers running down the street. That still happens, right? You can't take that out of the story. That happens. There's consequences. But even when we don't get it right, God gets it right. I have, to, I have to read the rest of the story to you. The kids, you're doing great this morning. Say, Mark, you're not sitting out here with them. You know, right? Yes, yes, you don't know. They're fidgeting and moving and touching things and doing all that kind of stuff. They're kids, come on. Kids move in church, adults sleep. So, see, that's just the kind of way it goes, right? Can I finish the story? Verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Hang on, this, this really gets good. And having sent into to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and, and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And after that time, there arose no little disturbance among the way. Everywhere Paul goes... 
concerning the way. Everywhere Paul goes, he starts a riot. You know, he, he really does. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And there he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have no wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded the, the, and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. The gospel not only changes lives, but it changes culture. It not only affects us, but it affects those around us. That's important. Artemis says, hey, we got to do something about Paul. Because there's so many people coming to Jesus and burning their magic books and they're getting rid of all their idols and nobody's placing orders online for idols anymore, you know? Nobody's doing that anymore. And, and we're, losing our, we're losing our livelihood because Paul keeps proclaiming Christ. You see, the gospel doesn't kill culture, but what the gospel does is it brings life to culture. Is exactly what it does. It brings change outside the walls of this place. I wrote this, it revalues what the world values. It redefines what the world deems to be important. As God reigns in our hearts this morning, then we take the goodness of God out these walls, out of these doors. Where you work, where you study, where you play, where you eat, where you do life. What a powerful story of how Paul rolls into town. He finds 12 disciples by association. He shares the gospel. He prays over them. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of God. He performs miracles as God works through him and Yet there are those that want to imitate those miracles and they end up in the fight of their life and being stripped of all their clothes and running through the middle of town. And yet what God does with that is he takes that and he does something powerful with it that transforms a good part of Asia for Christ to the point that the idol makers are no longer making idols because culture is changing. Because of the gospel. Do you know what this comes down to? This comes down to Christ finding you in death and saying, Hey, I love you so much, I don't want you to live like that. And He gives you life. But it comes down to this point of saying, Hey, I love you so much that I want you to die to yourself. To lay yourself before me. To give everything that you have. To give all your plans and all your desires. To simply trust me enough to obey me. Because that 
individual is the one that God uses to put the idol makers out of business. He works through that. Such a powerful thought this morning, how God has placed you where you are, put you in the family that you're in, given you the job that you currently have, placed you in the school that you're at for the purpose of making him powerfully known. So would you bow your heads for a moment with me? Father, most of us in this room struggle with trust. And Lord, that's what this truly comes down to is do we trust you enough to be obedient to you? Do we trust you enough to lay our lives before you? Do we trust you enough to surrender our hearts and our minds, our futures, our dreams, our plans, our purpose to you? Or Father, are we taking these things into our own hands? Are we trying to address our life by our own means? And constantly we wonder why things are mastering us and not you. So today, Father, we know that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. From that faith in you becomes trust, and from that trust comes obedience in our lives. So, Father, as we hear the word of God, we let that simply soak into our hearts, into our lives, that today we will take steps of trust. We will take those moments of trust with you. God, we will truly believe that you're for us and not against us and that you have everything planned for our good in life. That may be painful, yes, sometimes, but it's for our good. So we trust you in obedience. So, Lord, whether we are in fourth grade or whether we are in high school or college or we work a job every day, that when you draw us to someone, the first thought that we will have, Lord, is, God, I trust you enough to obey. That I'm not going in my power, in my own ability, but I'm going in the power of Christ inside of my life. And so I trust you. So, Father, we take those steps of trust this morning and obedience in our lives. And we trust you today, Lord. Use us this week starting now to change culture around us for the glory of your kingdom. And Father, we will praise you. In your